Hey everyone, I just want to say a big thank you to, to Target for appearing on this podcast and taking the time to open up about topics which are so fresh in his and our memory that I know it couldn't have been easy. But if it wasn't for people like him opening up and telling us, we really wouldn't have a first-hand experience or any first-hand knowledge of what was happening in India. And considering just the scale of devastation, death and misery, this is not a particularly cheerful topic, but I think it's very important. So there are some times during the podcast where it's a little hard to hear the target and it's sometimes it's this microphone and sometimes it's things in the background. But like I said before, I think this is a pretty important topic because uh, we should know as fellow humans what other humans are experiencing and suffering in India, in other places. So I hope you enjoy. This wasn't an easy topic, uh, particularly for the target, I'm sure, but uh, very informative nonetheless. So enjoy. Welcome to Safety Lost with your host, Stanley Ching. All right, everyone, welcome back to Safety Lost. Today we have a very interesting guest, and I would say the guest that I've looked forward to interviewing the most. Now, granted, I've only done a few, a handful of podcasts. But this one in particular stood out to me because just how interesting the topic was. And I've always had a passion for speaking to people from different backgrounds, different experiences. And today, our guest, the target, um, is someone from India uh, who, you know, recently went through quite a horrific situation along with the rest of the country um, and really the whole world with the COVID situation. So, the target would you like to introduce yourself say anything um you want to the audience um hi my name is the target i'm 24 years old and i'm a corporate slave nice to meet you <laughs> um so as i was doing some research for this uh i didn't want to go into this empty-handed and I was just watching some news clips, some news art, uh, reading some news articles about the situation in India recently, and there are a few words that kept popping up over and over again. Some of them included hellish environment. Uh, I saw the word apocalyptic a few times, disaster, and I guess um, what I'm trying to say is I, along with people who are not Indian would have an outside view of the situation in India. So everything we hear is filtered through the news or through a third person perspective. So what was it actually like to live in India during that COVID surge? Because I, I feel like just from watching the news that the, the spike in cases is actually reduced a little. So can you tell us what it was like living in India during that period of time and has the situation gotten any better? I'm not sure where to start, but maybe to give you some perspective, I think almost everybody knows somebody either in their extended family or in the neighborhood or among their circle of friends or maybe among their co-workers. Uh, somebody who has basically, you know, died as a result of uh, being infected with an uh, getting sick by the coronavirus. I think uh, almost everybody knows somebody who has personally been affected. I don't think there, there wouldn't be anybody who uh, doesn't know unless, you know, they literally live somewhere in the Himalayas far away. I know. Mm. And do you feel, um, uh, just to clarify, did you say that everyone in India knows someone who has died or someone who has gotten sick with COVID? I would say everybody knows somebody who has died. Wow, that's, you know, to be honest, like, uh, 
part of the reason I was so interested in this interview is because I feel like Australia has been somewhat sheltered from coronavirus. Uh, we're pretty lucky in the sense that this is an island country. So we're surrounded by water, which makes traveling here difficult or, or harder. And uh, obviously, just the size of the population, the population density also helps. And we've only recently experienced the Delta variant, which is uh, the variant that that just tore through India. And uh, we've only just started to, you know, like shut down, lock down. Um, and only in the past two weeks have I really experienced. It. So when you say things like every Indian has basically experienced death in their family to some extent, it's pretty... Um, what's the word? It's pretty eye-opening. And, and uh, I do consider myself pretty lucky to be sheltered from it. So um, just some follow-up questions like, what is the mood like? What was the mood like in India? Uh, I guess, what were people saying? Was there just a lot of anger and confusion um, at, at the government or at other people or at the medical service? Like, what was it like? I guess the main question is, what was it like living in India during that period? I guess... Uh... It was a bit of uh, all of those, and to some extent, it's actually continuing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, at the government, people are angry because it could have been avoided. And, you know, the government, the current ruling party, they continued to, you know, go on with the rallies, like uh, multiple campaigns and such, gathering large masses of crowds while the uh, virus was spreading. Mm -hmm. People are angry at the medical facilities because of their neglect, because of, you know, many hospitals, many private hospitals using this opportunity to, you know, try to rob people. Really? And, uh, see, that's something I haven't heard about. Um, can we just, sorry, sorry to interrupt, can we just clarify, when you say the government... Um, I know it's Mo uh, Modi in charge, but uh, what's the name of his political party? And why do you think he kept the rallies going? Like, why didn't, did other political parties stop their rallies? Okay, so the name of his party is BJP. And it wouldn't be accurate to say that other political parties stopped their rallies entirely. Uh, but it's more like, you know, only BJP had the sufficient funds and the capability to conduct them at a large scale and continue them despite, you know, all the restrictions and such. Mm -hmm. And even then, you know, a lot of people are still still defending Modi. And a lot of people are criticizing him. A lot of people are saying that uh, he has done his best, but the medical facilities, uh, there are all kinds of opinions, actually. But uh, basically, the opinion, by and large, I think, uh, is that it could have been avoided. But, you know, there's also another aspect of the media. The mainstream media in India isn't ac accurately uh, reporting on the deaths, some people suspect. And it's also partly because of how the government is controlling. So uh, majority of Indian population is Hindu, right? Mm -hmm. So in Hinduism, we basically uh, cremate the dead. Mm -hmm. So if you consider the you know number of deaths the government is reporting for coronavirus and such, and if you consider how many bodies are being uh, cremated every day, versus how many bodies were being cremated, say last year or two years ago, then you really start to see some uh, discrepancies. Mm -hmm. so basically, uh, you know, during the peak period, uh, th there were cremation grounds which were so full that uh, they had to, you know, start cremating in nearby parks and even a block of roads to have some space to create funeral pyres. So, uh, based on that, the numbers do seem very sketchy, actually. Mm. Um, just... Just to elaborate on that, so the numbers you're talking about, and I, I have them in front of me. So at the peak period, which was, let's see, around the May period, 
um, that seemed like the peak period from these statistics. It was reported to have around five, just under 5,000 people die a day in India. And you're saying according to just popular opinion that people think that's too little? Yes, that is so. Because generally in cremation grounds, they reported that something like uh, uh, 10 to 20 bodies at most used to come on normal days in the previous years. But now there were, you know, 100 or 150 dead bodies or something. And this for most of the, you know, cremation grounds. So there are like maybe five or six cremation grounds in a city. And then there are so many cities. So we don't really know what was the number of death certificates issued or such because that data is not publicly made available. But the popular opinion uh, does doubt that those numbers are very little. I was, as I said before, uh, before this interview, I just wanted to do some research because there is that distance that I have to this event. And this video that I watched from this person, uh, he was in charge of cremation. I forgot his name, but he was in charge of cremation. And he said, uh, and he actually repeated things that you just said, which was on a normal day, uh, two years, three years ago, he would get around 10 bodies a day. Uh, now that's jumped to 90 bodies a day or sometimes 100 bodies a day. And uh, it was it was actually a really touching video. And one thing that stands out all the time from every video, everything I've watched, everything I've read about India during this period of time was just how tired people looked. Um, this person uh, who worked at the cremation said he would work 22 hours a day or you uh, would sleep for an hour or two hours a day at max. And I guess what was really touching was, uh, as you said, in Hinduism, you have to cremate the body. And he, his foundation said uh, during this period of time, because of the economic stresses on people, like people are not really working. Uh, I'm sure there's just so much pressure. He said, all funerals will be free of charge and we provide uh, wood free of charge. So, um, I guess, I guess, I just want to. Uh, I, I want your opinion on that, on on that story I just said, and then I want you to talk about uh, a little more about Modi. So, do you think this has rocked the government, or sorry, the people's trust in Modi? I think to some extent it has, because a lot of people like the thing with Modi is is that. Uh, uh, not only does he have excessive amounts of power to censor the media and such, but he also has a large following of very loyal fans. Mm -hmm. But, you know, since everybody is affected to some extent, I would say somewhat the following would have been affected. Although it's hard mm -hmm. to say uh, how much exactly, because it's still unfolding. But, you know, Vice does not necessarily differentiate whether you are a Modi fan or you are against Modi or such. Mm -hmm. uh, if you are infected, you are infected, right? Mm -hmm. So, yes, it, it has changed his opinion a bit. And um, just to just to make sure, uh, most of Modi's supporters they are uh, they're more right wing. Hindu nationalist is that correct and is that one of the reasons he kept the rallies and religious festival uh, religious festivals open because he didn't want to affect or impact his base I think that is the case uh, however I would like to point not for you know the sake of censorship but uh, it's not the government is entirely to blame to some extent of blame also lies with the people uh, mm -hmm. because you know this period was a so-called second wave of the virus mm -hmm. and as soon as it ended uh, so basically hospital beds were full and healthcare facilities were overwhelmed and so and so uh, but as soon as you know restrictions were lifted people flocked to you know uh, tourist destinations in the hills really? and that's interesting and from hospitals being, you know, overbooked, uh, we went from that situation to hotels being overbooked instead. 
and this was just a few weeks ago. Really? So uh, are you saying that uh, a few weeks ago the lockdown was uh, was removed and people instantly started going out? Like that seems strange because to me, if India was hit that hard from ev- all the news articles that I've read, all the news sources I've read, that like if India was truly hit that hard, that they would immediately go and a party or, or go traveling as soon as the regulations were lifted. Like that, that seems a little strange to me. Actually, I think uh, the people probably think like uh, if they don't go now, they won't be able to go maybe for another six months or so because the third wave would come in. But what they don't realize is that they are a part of the third wave. Mm-hmm. And is is the is COVID more concentrated in the north of India or in the south India? I guess it would make sense that it's most concentrated around the urban areas, but is there a part of India that is especially affected? And has it also flowed into neighboring countries? So whether it's Bangladesh or even Sri Lanka or Pakistan, like has COVID rippled outwards? Yes, I would say it has rippled outwards. As for whether it is concentrated in the north or south, uh, I think uh, a binary also to it would be a bit biased. But uh, the thing is, it has affected people, it has affected regions on the basis of population density, I would say. Uh, regions which were, you know, which had more people basically affected more and, you know, uh, people, regions which are sparsely populated or affected less. Mm-hmm. However, as far as the spread goes, I would say that uh, some states in the south have actually handled it better, uh, mm-hmm. especially, you know, Kerala. Because and, and why do you think so? Uh, because there was an interview with the chief minister of the state, and even he, he was uh, pointing to the discrepancy number of bodies burning in the funeral pyres versus the number of deaths reported. So mm-hmm. uh, I think in India, it's actually rare for a government official to admit to such uh, discrepancy. So the fact that he pointed it out suggests mm-hmm. that they actually are working towards it. Mm-hmm. And also in terms of, you know, the relief government provides uh, it's not entirely on the center it's also on a state-by-state basis okay. so and also the type of reporting they do how basically how honest they are mm-hmm. uh, in parts of uh, european bihar which happen to be the two most densely populated states can you tell can you tell the audience where india uh, these two states are uh they're in the north actually in around mm-hmm. the you know northwest part mm-hmm. uh, uh, basically the rivers Gangai Yumna uh, flow through these states mm-hmm. uh, UP UP mostly has you know the calmer part of the river and Bihar and you know Bengal I would say they have the uh, flood basins so mm-hmm. Uh, so locally, the the river in Bihar is called the Sorrow, you know, so and so region. Mm-hmm. So basically, uh, they are very densely populated regions, and there were instances where people, uh, somebody died in somebody's family. So rather than you know give them a proper funeral because they couldn't afford it. Uh, they simply buried them somewhere, and mm-hmm. uh, when it rained, uh, basically the soil wore off, and the dead bodies were exposed. Oh my god! Oh, you, you know that 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 uh, reminds me of this story that I once read. Uh, it's not exactly the same, but uh, it does remind me of it. Uh, apparently, in Madagascar a few years ago, the Black Death came back. And part of the reason it came back was, uh, this is just what what I read. So it it might be a little uh, exaggerated, but people were burying their dead. And then there was this ritual or there was this uh, tradition where they would dig up the dead 
and then dance with them, apparently. Now, I know the Indians weren't doing this, but because they were exposed to dead bodies afterwards, they um, uh, they caught the Black Plague again. And there was a period of time when the Black Plague was killing dozens of people in Madagascar a day. Um, could I ask a, a question uh, about bodies being exposed in India? Now, I'm not sure how much of this is exaggeration. Uh, so the Ganges, uh, I hope I'm saying that correct. Am I saying that correct? Um, the what? The, uh, okay, so that means I'm clearly not saying it. The, you know the Ganges River? Uh, okay. How do you say it? All right. Uh, I guess that's how you say it as a native English speaker, but uh, we use the term Ganga. Ganga. Or, okay. mm-hmm. or maybe in Indian English, we say Ganges. Ganges. Oh, Ganges. Okay, well, I'll say Ganga. Uh, so with that, uh, that river, uh, I'm not sure if this was exaggerated in order to maybe besmirch the Indian name, but I, I don't really know. But I was hearing uh, cases where... Because this this river is so important, uh, bodies were uh, dead bodies were being dumped or thrown in there. Uh, because I'm pretty sure uh, the dead is supposed to be, or the cremation ashes are supposed to be put there. And then what what would happen was these bodies would wash wash uh, into other villages or other cities and infect other people. So, uh, did you hear about this story? And if you did, or if you didn't. How truthful do you think this is? Okay, so I have uh, not heard about this story, but I think uh, there might be some truth to it. However, I don't think uh, it would necessarily be about the coronavirus, since it cannot catch it from a dead body. Mm. Uh, but you know, there are a lot of Permissions which do happen on the river Ganga. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, there are certain holy sites which are situated along it, certain cities. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are people who specifically uh, go to die in those cities mm-hmm. because it is considered a very holy. And okay. and sometimes uh, when people die, they are, the funeral pyre is made such that it floats uh, while burning, so the the burning dead body it sinks into the river. Because it has been happening at such a mass scale, uh, there are a lot of you know concerns with pollution and such. Mm-hmm. And I've read that there are certain turtles actually which feed on the half burnt flesh of people. Wait, sorry, can you say that again? There are certain what? Sorry, who feed on the flesh? Like. Turtles. Turtles. Okay. I, I've actually read that too as well. And I think it's not unlikely that uh, other bodies would fl- float off in the, you know, nearby villages or such. Mm. Um, one of the big things that, that was repeated, uh, as I said before, throughout my research was just the lack of oxygen. Can you uh, elaborate on that? Was there... Um, was there a shortage of oxygen? And if there was, like, was it the government's fault for not providing more? Was it the medical institution's fault? And there's something that you said before, which I, I actually just forgot it, forgot about it until just then. You said a lot of people were not only angry at the government, but at the medical institutions, at the hospitals, and, and maybe even doctors at ripping people off during this period of time. So um, this is really uh, two questions put in one, which is, the oxygen situation was it really hard to get oxygen and why was it so hard and secondly uh can you elaborate a little more on how doctors were trying to rip off other people or hospitals were trying to rip off other people right so uh you know india basically does not have a healthcare you know uh you know so healthcare for its people mm-hmm. and India basically uh, became a capitalistic country only about some 30 or so years ago. Mm-hmm. So what happened is India picked up uh, not only some of the good parts of capitalism, but also some of the bad parts of capitalism. So uh, there are some places 
where you shouldn't handle everything as a business. Healthcare happens to be one of them. Unfortunately, that is uh, not the case in India. So there are a lot of private hospitals here, which actually can take whatever fees they want or whatever fees the you know the patients are willing to pay. And rather than you know treating them as patients, they are more like uh, customers or a source of income for the hospitals. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in India, there are government hospitals and there are private hospitals. At government hospitals, treatment happens as at a very low cost or even free of charge. Mm-hmm. But at private hospitals, you know, it's like uh, the US. Uh, basically, uh, you and your distance will continue to pay your pay the bills if you you know accidentally get sick or if the hospitals decide that it's more profitable to keep you sick or keep you hospitalized. So wait, wait. So you so you just said that in in the US, um, hospitals might keep you sick if it's more profitable. Like I agree with the profitable part, but are you saying that during the COVID situation, some hospitals were keeping their patients sick or within the hospital in order to change to charge them more money? Uh, to give an example, you know how coronavirus is treated. There are uh, various types of treatments. One of them is plasma therapy. So mm-hmm. plasma therapy was uh, disapproved by you know many official bodies of many, many other countries some six months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, now it would be know, maybe. By the way, do you know what plasma therapy involves? Uh, so, I I'm not science trained, and I'm sure some people in the audience would like to know. Uh, do Do you actually know what that entails? Right. So, uh, so basically, uh, you have a sick patient, and you have a donor who has a matching blood type, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the idea is that the donor would be somebody who has already recovered from the virus, mm-hmm. and if uh, if you basically uh, take out plasma f- from their body, blood plasma, mm-hmm. and transfuse it to the patient, the patient would you know gradually develop antibodies of their own, and that would help them against the virus. Got it, got it. So that's the theory. But the thing is, this was disapproved by many other, you know, institutions and bodies of doctors in the UK and elsewhere some seven to eight months ago Mm -hmm. that plasma therapy is not necessarily effective. And on the contrary, uh, plasma therapy can even be dangerous because it can promote the mutation of even more deadlier variants of the virus. Interesting. But even then, a lot of hospitals continue recommending plasma therapy. And then there were instances where a lot of unnecessary tests were performed or, you know, uh, patients were overcharged with uh, things they didn't actually pay for. There were cases where people were apparently hooked onto a ventilator but it turned out that the ventilator was not even switched on or it was not even plugged in or there was basically nothing attached to the ventilator such as an oxygen tank or something. Hmm. It was only for the show. And was that for placebo, uh, which is to make the the victim, uh, not the victim, the, uh, the sick person feel like they are getting treatment and hope that they their mind tricks them into getting better or was that just so that they could charge them more money i think it's a lecture because uh as far as i know placebo uh doctors and hospitals actually conduct placebo to test the effectiveness of medicines so mm-hmm. say for example there are there's patient a and patient b patient b is receiving the actual treatment patient a is receiving something like sugar pills so if you want to test how effective the recovery of patient B is compared to patient A, patient A won't necessarily know that 
they are receiving the placebo treatment but it's for the study mm-hmm. i don't think uh it was necessarily for placebo i think it was more like they were trying to rip people off then there were there's instances where you know the dead body is wrapped and given to the people so the hospital staff they were basically telling them not to check it at the hospital and uh when they went to the cremation grounds to unwrap the dead body they found that it was not their family member but some stranger instead wow oh my goodness and do you think this has resulted in a huge loss of trust in the medical profession and and if the answer is yes uh which i i assume maybe i'm wrong I, if the answer is yes what do you think uh what do you think are the consequences of this what are the repercussions of this distrust with the medical profession which is really one of the pillars of society i would say there isn't any one answer to this and whatever answers do exist maybe most of them are unpleasant so one kind of repercussion one kind of reaction to the situation has been that you know you know in india we also have some alternate system of systems of medicines including some traditional medicine and such mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so uh there have been practitioners of uh there's not to disapprove the traditional medicine systems uh they do work effectively for a lot of diseases but certain practitioners of or certain promoters of such systems they started spreading the false claim that certain medicine which they developed is more effective uh in curing the virus is it's effective against preventing the virus and such mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they basically used this opportunity to try to rip people off mm. or to discredit doctors on the other hand a lot of hospitals and such were exposed but in india there's another issue we have which is that if there is a big and powerful organization if you expose them they can actually uh sue you for you know what is it called basically defamation yes defamation mm-hmm. and in most cases the person who is suing them if they are an individual or if they don't have enough funds to uh basically continue pressing the case they usually drop the charges mm, got it and I'm not sure if India has uh if this has happened in India but do you think this distrust in medical practices or maybe just the just the fear and shock of something like covid just tearing through the country do you think this will lead to more anti-vaxxers in India It's actually hard to say if you if you look at the data for how many people have been vaccinated or what percentage of the population is vaccinated mm-hmm. uh it actually happens to be the lowest for the two most populated states and actually very high for the smaller less populated states like the states with less population or mm-hmm. even states which are less densely populated mm-hmm. and i think to some extent there there is also a factor of religion as in you know certain religious leaders basically claim that a certain extremist religious leaders i would say they claim that vaccines are against their religion or uh basically the way they are produced is against the religion or such then there are conspiracy theories as to whether vaccines are you know the typical anti-vaxxer theories that that the government is putting something in the vaccines or such microchips <laughs> i don't think a lot of people actually believe in microchips but uh, there is a general mistrust uh, because yeah. uh, even after taking the vaccine a lot of people including doctors have died because of the virus and mm-hmm. uh, although those happen to be a small percentage of the cases uh because such cases are highlighted a lot in the media people tend to be hesitant or distrustful of getting the vaccine mm-hmm. 
Um, this actually reminds me of this video that I watched previously, uh, which talked about how do you get communities which have their own form of medicine to get vaccinated. And the person speaking, she wasn't actually Chinese, but she used uh, China as an example. And uh, I'm sure you know what acupuncture is, which is just the injection of uh, like a tiny needle into the body. And then um, it's supposed to, I'm not really that familiar with the, um, I guess the specifics. I, I've actually had it done to me before, but the idea is you, you poke certain pressure points and then your body is supposed to react positively. Um, and that idea, that concept, which has been in Chinese medicine for hundreds, if not thousands of years, that idea was used to spread vaccines. Uh, they actually used this idea of what we are going to in you know, inject or, or poke you with the needle and then uh, certain things will happen, certain positive things will happen just like acupuncture. And that was actually one way to get the idea of vaccinations and needles into the Chinese community. That's kind of smart, but I don't think it was always work because it also depends on, you know, the population. Mm. In case of India, India, I would say it may not necessarily work to the same extent because India is uh, not a single uniform culture. Uh, there are various religions, even within the religions there are various sects. Even the followers of all these various uh, sects and religions, they may belong to different type of ethnicities or certain communities or such. So uh, I guess that's a big challenge. However, speaking of vaccines, India actually happens to be one of the leading expo exporters of vaccines in the world. I think something like one third of all the world's vaccines are manufactured in India. However, even dis despite that, India has a shortage of vaccines. And is that because the companies keep selling it to high bidders? And if that is the case, why hasn't the government jumped in? It's a... Uh, it's a bit of mixed thing, actually. It's like uh, before there was a crisis in India, India actually promised to, to various neighboring countries and such that they will be given a certain amount of vaccines. Mm -hmm. So uh, when the vaccines were actually ready, that was also the time when second wave hit. So for legal reasons, a lot of the companies are a lot of contractors couldn't actually, you know, you know, break their promises of uh, giving the vaccines. Mm -hmm. And even then, in some cases, the government did step in and, you know, stop the export of vaccines. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't think it would be 100% possible to contain it because uh, they basically did not expect it to happen. They thought that I think uh, just more like the first wave is gone and now maybe we can sit back and have rallies, have uh, religious festivals and everything would be all right. I think it was more like uh, they wanted that kind of impression. Mm. Um, one of the videos I watched was from an Indian person who was li living in Britain, I think. And something he said, which stuck out to me was there was a period of time at the beginning of this year when India was quite confident or quite, I guess, proud um, because other countries, other European countries, uh, the United States, wealthier countries were struggling with COVID uh, in a way which India was not. And there was a sense of pride that India was producing so many vaccines. They were making deals with his neighbors saying, you know, we'll provide some vaccines. And then there was almost a sense of despair when the opposite happened. So um, I guess my question is, was there a sense of pride at the beginning of this year that India was actually doing relatively well? I would say, yes. There certainly was a sense of pride. Maybe the people were overconfident. And I think... 
it did come quite as a shock to many people or many institutions in fact when you know the opposite happened mm-hmm. and uh, to to the vaccine's point i think another thing to consider is that although india does produce one third of the world's vaccines a lot of these vaccines are not actually uh, patented by or uh, entirely controlled by indian companies but it's rather like foreign investors outsource the production to india so even if even if the vaccines are produced here what many people don't realize is that doesn't mean that we have complete control over you know who is using the vaccines or to what extent can we uh, leverage that to help our own country mm. um but how much do you think the second and first wave impacted uh india's relationship with china and the growing tension between the border i think it's called ladok uh from memory how how important do you think this virus was in raising the tension i would say probably a lot so as far as the public sentiment goes you know most indians actually happen to be very very patriotic uh there was also the issue of conflict in ladak and then around the same time pandemic uh like the coronavirus was spreading and i think a lot of people do believe that china is responsible or that it may in fact even have been planned by china to actually set back you know progress of other countries and such however that's one aspect of it another aspect is that uh there i think around may or so there was some issue with transportation china had actually banned some flights going to and from india and china which actually led to a slowdown in the vaccine production process because a lot of uh, materials required could not be be delivered on time and also you know there are few vaccines now but india despite its close proximity to china doesn't actually you know recognize or uh, is not actually using the you know chinese patented vaccines mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is, i i believe it's called sinopharm sinovac or something i think uh-huh. uh talking about the chinese vaccine um has there been any discussions if uh, it's effective or not like or has or is the reason that india is not using it because of the detention in the in ladok and the um growing distrust of the gov- chinese government i think it's uh, it's more like the growing distrust of chinese government and the situation in ladak only happens to be one of those many points of distrust and maybe another case would be that uh in turn the chinese government also distrusts india and maybe to some extent does not allow for certain things to happen uh when you say allow for certain things to happen uh are you saying like doesn't allow indians to buy the chinese vaccine or makes it harder for indian companies to get it is that what you're trying to say uh yes that's what i mean basically Mhm. Um can you tell me some of the restrictions that were put on you during the during April and May which was the most extreme periods? Um for example in Australia or in Sydney really I can only talk about Sydney. Um we are uh there've been restrictions such as we have to wear face masks when we go outside. Uh it was recently uh put in that any employer that makes you go to work when work can be done online can be fined so what were some restrictions that you had to deal with during that period of time uh we did have to wear face masks as for employers i think uh during the first wave itself other companies which would you know switch to work from home did switch other than that a lot of companies were actually calling their employees to work 
that was during the first wave. However, I think during the second wave, most of the companies switched back to the work from home thing. But I think even if they actually wanted to call their employees, they couldn't because you needed certain permissions, you needed to be in certain, you know, uh, certain categories of professions were actually going out was uh, essential. Mm-hmm. And we actually had something uh, sort of like a curfew where we, we could only go out uh, within a certain period of time, uh, like a certain time since morning till evening. Mm-hmm. And during that period, the, you know, all the shops selling non-essential goods such as electronics or clothing or such, they were closed. Mm-hmm. And only uh, grocery stores and uh, that's it, like only certain certain businesses were open which were considered essential, but that too, uh, they were open only for certain hours of the day. Mm-hmm. So when when were these hours of the day and was there any support, any financial, any government support given to businesses which were required to shut down? So when exactly were these hours? To be honest, I don't really remember. I think it was something like, um, maybe something like from 9 to 7 or maybe 8 to Eight to seven or something. And what happens if you get caught outside? If you are uh, on your own, or if you are with one other person, and if you're wearing face mask, then it's fine. Other than that, if uh, there are, there are three or more people, or if uh, you are not wearing face mask, basically the police can arrest you, and you'll be fined for it. Mm-hmm. Do you know how much that fine was? I don't know what is the official fine. And in India, it so happens that, you know, rather than pay fines, it's more like people pay bribes because paying the bribe would be easier and uh, basically they don't, they won't have to register the fine or such. So, mm. yeah, this, that actually reminds me of this story um, from one of my Filipino friends, uh, a few years ago, he went. He went back to the Philippines, and um, uh, what's the story? For some reason, he couldn't. His his uncle couldn't drive the car. Now, I'm not really sure what that reason was. Uh, maybe it was his license was overdue, or maybe like you could only drive the car on a certain day because of some regulation. I'm not 100 percent sure, but he told me that when he got pulled up by the police, the uncle simply reached into his wallet, pulled out. $100 bill or, or uh, some amount of money and just said, okay, here you go. And the police said, all right, have a good day and, and drove away. So um, were situations like that common in India? It does happen a lot. But uh, if, if, the, if they think that they can probably get more money or maybe if they're in a bad mood and if they would like to, I don't know, maybe bother you a bit, then... I cannot help you, but it does happen a lot. Well, I guess I guess my my ending question is: What happens from here? What do you think will happen? What do you think people's spirits are? How in, how enthusiastic are people for the rest of this year? And you mentioned before there was this fear of the third wave, and if it does come, what do you think will happen? Do you think India will be better prepared? Do you think? people in hospitals be better prepared uh i guess i just want you to predict and i know it's never easy to do so but predict into the future how india will uh, react or maybe recover for the rest of this year to be honest i know it's not easy (laughs) (laughs) to be honest uh, personally i don't think there would be that much of a difference more like people probably have gotten used to this kind of environment by now. Maybe the third wave won't be as intense. Or maybe it might be equally as intense, but maybe people will not care as much. It's actually hard to say. As for government, uh, the government is trying hard to, you know, 
retain their image in very questionable you know by using very questionable methods i would say for example you know uh, if you get vaccinated on your certificate there is a photograph of modi on it really wow yes. i did not know that <laughs> yes so if you get vaccinated you get a certificate with a photograph of modi and you need that certificate to you know basically travel or apply for visa or such wherever it is allowed wow and there has been a lot of backlash for it but it so happens that a majority of india's population is still not you know very well educated they are easily swayed by things like this mm-hmm. so to be honest it's actually very hard to say what what would happen because you know unlike unlike china uh indian people sentiments uh they are not entirely controlled by the government unlike the west uh people are not they don't have a good understanding of uh, their election process or such mm-hmm. or how the system works so if something good happens even if even if the government was not entirely to to be responsible for it they would take the credit and most people would actually believe it if something mm-hmm. bad were to happen if the government were responsible for it they you know they can easily make somebody else a scapegoat and people might believe it it's actually very hard to say in some cases and do do you think the modi government or the government in general has made other parties the scapegoat for the second wave actually that has been happening ever since they came into power so and who's the scapegoat yes scapegoating i think it, it's it has more or less become the norm however i think uh, with the vaccine rollout the third wave may not be as intense or maybe at least some of the states where vaccine rollout has happened successfully they won't suffer as much as for the general distrust in hospitals and such maybe there would be measures for uh, i would say transparency to some extent and But, um and uh just just to touch back on my previous question who do you think the the modi government has been scapegoating for the second wave i think it's it's not like uh, they are scapegoating a particular party like you are responsible for spreading the so and so way but it's more like they are uh, scapegoating them that despite the government trying their best other parties are blaming them when they couldn't do so and so Mm-hmm. and if if somebody actually questions something about the economy or something they resort to ad hominem attacks about the person questioning rather than actually answering the question or addressing the issue so i think it's more like shifting the responsibility like you know diverting the attention of people rather than shifting the responsibility. Mm. Okay. Um and last question. Um there was discussion mm. a few years ago that India would be one of the rising powers, cultural powers, economic powers in this century. Um uh, just because of the population and because of its rising GDP. So there was a lot of talk about India becoming one of the pillars of Asia. Do you think the coronavirus has set that back? And if so, um how many years do you think it has set it back? I remember you know that meme superpower 2020. Oh. That was <laughs> um that was that was everywhere. I don't know who started it. Was it did an Indian person actually say that? Because I I never really saw an Indian person say that, but from like 2016 to 2019 that was everywhere i think it's like uh, some ultra nationalistic person probably made a claim somewhere that india would be a superpower by 
and some people picked up on it and used the use these words to mock india mm-hmm. and what happened was you know even the indians started to use this uh, superpower 2020 thing to mock mock the government and all the weird things happening in the country so whenever there was something like a very ridiculous news article something mm-hmm. so, something which is so ridiculous you, you wouldn't expect it to be real uh indians themselves used to repost that with the caption superpower 2020 <laughs> i'm so upset that meme has died that was just ridiculous so as for india becoming a superpower or a leading power in asia maybe it has been set back and to to be honest it's very hard to say if that will actually happen uh because you know india is basically a continent sized country mhm so we humongous. we call europe a continent but uh, in reality we only call it a continent because of the cultural differences it's actually a part of eurasia but if we were to apply you know the same criteria for europe to be a continent india and the neighboring countries altogether also you know and continent in english you know uh when we use the phrase the subcontinent mm-hmm. almost always in 90% of the cases it refers to india and not any other part of the world mm that is true so i think it's actually very hard to say whether this would actually happen what india needs is you know some leader like atatürk or lee kuan yew but what mm-hmm. india gets is people who actually you know focus on uh getting the popular opinion and people who actually happen to be very inept at uh their own domain for example if a certain minister has been assigned so so ministry they actually won't have any background of it and even while working in that ministry they won't know basic things about it mm. um that reminds me of this i think it was japan i'm not i need to double check but this japanese minister of um he does, doesn't know how to operate in computer right yeah and, and he was in charge of like uh online defense or something i don't it has only to do with electronics uh, i forgot the industry in particular but Yeah, he admitted that he had no idea how to use a computer, which was just um absurd and it was actually as absurd as uh recently, uh, by recently I would say within the 5 years. I think who was it? I think it was a politician called Tony Abbott. Uh don't quote me, but this pretty powerful politician in Australia. Uh, he was actually prime minister for a little bit who was appointed the minister of women and he was a male and um there was a lot of a uh, a lot of uh jokes um, that he could get appointed that to that position but i have to double check that so um you know don't quote me on that just yet i think it's it's probably not just india it's like a global trend you know i was watching a video it was something like why are why why do so many fortune 500 ceos have an engineering background so basically the video explained what the author thought or what the Uploaded thought for his reasons. Somebody commented, "Now you should do a follow-up video called Why Why are so many politicians uneducated?'" <laughs> and and uh, you know, since I'm from India, India comes to mind. But I think to the most extent, it's actually true for most of the world. Actually, there, there are very mm-hmm. few countries which actually have politicians who are educated and who who actually you know are pragmatic enough. to be in the positions even if they don't have the necessary qualifications uh i would agree with that and um this video or this article that i read recently said part of the reason that we think the politicians in the current day are worse or are getting worse partly it's nostalgia we always look back you know to the to, to the past and we only remember like the really good ones or the really bad ones so i would say it's partly nostalgia but more than that the article the video argued that a lot of the power has shifted from the political sphere to the economic sphere so that's why a lot of the 
intelligent, capable, pragmatic people are actually choosing to enter economics and they'd rather be a CEO than a politician? Personally, I think there's some truth to it because if you are something like a very powerful CEO or businessman, uh, you you can actually you don't need to be a politician because you you can actually buy politicians. You can you know basically influence them. You can pay for the rallies and mm-hmm. they they would make laws that would support you. you know? Yeah, exactly. If if I was a dictator and I was trying to take over the world, uh, which I'm not, <laughs> but if I was that, I would rather be a business. Uh, business person, a CEO, because then I could just buy a politician to do my bidding. Uh, that that seems more more um, more favorable than being the politician and being subject to scrutiny and criticism. I think uh, working behind the shadows and getting someone else to do it for you is probably more effective. Right. I think we have a lot of examples like that in Asian countries, especially if you look at. South Korea, they have jabons, uh, which are like a relic from Zap- Japanese zaibatsu. What, so, sorry, what, what, what did you say? In South Korea, they have, uh, could you repeat that again? In South Korea, they have something? Uh, jabol, C-H-A-E-B-O-L. Okay, I've heard of zaibatsu, which is basically big industry working with government, but I've never heard of that word you just said. So could you explain it for me? Okay, so basically the Chinese characters are the same. The kanji for zaibatsu, uh, it becomes the hanja for chaewol in Korean. Mm-hmm. So uh, Japan no longer has zaibatsu. Uh, now it has something called keiretsu. But like it's a similar but a differently managed structure. Mm-hmm. But the whole issue with, uh, or rather the, defining feature of Jabbals is that there are very large organizations like Samsung or mm-hmm. Hyundai. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have many other organizations under them and basically they operate as companies and the succession of power is actually uh, not on basis of meritocracy or hierarchy but uh, rather on the basis of which family Counted them or mm, yeah. In the case of Samsung, you know the uh, CEO of Samsung, he was said to be in hospital for uh, so many years, and when this coronavirus pandemic happened, they actually announced that he died. So there is like a conspiracy theory which says that the Korean government were hesitant to declare his death because if they declared his death, uh, his successor would have to pay inheritance tax, and that would bring down the whole country's GDP by something like uh, 2 to 4%. I, I've actually heard that, and it is insane. Um, that's the, the fact that that's true. There was discussion that they were trying to hide whether he was alive or not, and it was a top secret whether the founder or the owner, uh, the CEO, was alive or not. But uh, I'm surprised they, they announced it. Why would they announce it? It's just my personal theory, but I think it's probably because uh, when the pandemic hit, a lot of countries' GDPs were affected. So Mm. uh, if they had to make that announcement and if that would actually bring down the GDP, they wouldn't suspect or be able to trace it back to this particular event. Got it. That that makes sense. Rather, the pandemic would be the scapegoat instead. Mm, that makes sense because um, if, if the whole point is to avoid a sudden dip in the economy uh, that can be easily traced back to this person, then uh, it makes sense that this was pre-planned because it's not like the person planned to die during the COVID period. Um, you know, no one, no one, goes, no one plans that to happen in advance. Uh, but um, that's interesting. Um, any any last words you want to say? about uh i guess just to me or to our audience about the situation in india and any hopes any any um interesting points um, to be honest i'm not sure what to say about the situation uh as for last words maybe uh 
Thanks for listening to Safety Last. Mm-hmm. Um, appreciate that. And uh, you know, this isn't this isn't an easy topic. And I really appreciate you coming on and speaking to me, because otherwise we just wouldn't get the same firsthand experience. A lot of what you hear from the news, um, I'm not saying that's wrong, but it lacks the personal touch which a podcast or a long-form interview can give. And uh, whether it's talking about what you went through or the government or the faith or loss of faith in the medical institutions, uh, you've been you know, very articulate and uh, it's been very, very insightful. So thank you very much um, and I'm sure we'll talk in the future. Thank you for having me. Okay. Have a good day. Thank you for tuning in to Safety Last with Stanley Ching. If you enjoyed this, then please leave a rating or a comment. I hope you're leaving with a new idea and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and other places that can be found in the description.